cancer industry specifically. It has changed dramatically. The field of biophotonics was just getting started. The first instrument that I bought was a microwave spectrum analyzer. It's time to shed light on our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light. Join us as we explore the latest in lasers, optics, spectroscopy, and microscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape. We're brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. Researchers from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research at the University of Western Australia claimed a world record for what the team is calling the most stable transmission of a laser signal through the atmosphere. The work combines the phase stabilization technology of UWA, developed for the Square Kilometre Array Telescope, with advanced self-guiding optical terminals. The combination enabled laser signals to be sent from one point to another without atmospheric interference. A method of modifying the spectral width of extreme ultraviolet light has been developed by researchers at the Max Born Institute of Nonlinear Optics in Short Pulse Spectroscopy. The scientists used a novel phase matching scheme in four-wave mixing, which allowed them to compress the spectral width of the initial broadband light by more than 100 times. Researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy's Ames Laboratory, along with collaborators from Brookhaven National Laboratory and the University of Alabama at Birmingham, have found a light-induced switch that twists the crystal lattice of the material and switches on an electron current that appears to be nearly dissipationless. The discovery was made in a class of topological materials that researchers believe holds great promise for spintronics, topological effect transistors, and quantum computing. National Institute of Standards and Technology researchers miniaturized the optical components necessary for atom cooling, achieving a step towards employing the technology on microchips. The research holds implications for atomic clocks, navigation without GPS, and the simulation of quantum systems. And finally, Researchers from the Technical University of Vienna and Utrecht University have developed a laser-dependent method for gathering data through disordered and complicated media using a mathematical procedure. The procedure alters the light waves according to the particularities of the medium there to be passing through, allowing for accurate measurements of objects behind the disordered medium. Up next, news editor Jake Saltzman speaks with Jess Wade of Imperial College London as we launch Season 3 of All Things Photonics. Today's episode is sponsored by MKS Instruments. We have you covered with our full portfolio of solutions in the areas of optics, photonics, lasers, vibration control, and precision motion control. Surround the Workpiece is an MKS offering that includes product design and development, system level integration, research and development, system, subsystem, and component selection, and maintenance, repair, and calibration services in the field of laser-based guidance and control for manufacturing processes. For more information about Surround the Workpiece, please visit www.newport.com.
and by the North American subsidiary of Hamamatsu Photonics. Hamamatsu provides state-of-the-art photonic devices for applications ranging from life sciences to quantum technologies. These devices include PMTs, SPADs, SIPMs, photodiodes, spatial light modulators, image sensors, and cameras. For more information, visit www.hamamatsu.com. joined today by the inaugural winner of the SPIE Diversity Outreach Award, which he earned in 2020, and a recipient of the 2019 British Empire Medal for Services to Gender Diversity in Optics. She joins us from London, where she holds a position in Imperial College London's Blackett Laboratory for a discussion on her work with organic light-emitting diodes and other photonic technologies. Our guest is Jess Wade. Hi, Jess. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so I, I got into it a bit in the introduction, but your presence in the global physics and science communities really includes a, a prominent message of equity and systemic bias breaking. At what point in your life did those two, uh, science and equity, begin to intersect, if you feel they have? And at what point did those become a, a focal point or focal points of your career in life? It's such a good question, and, and I just wanted to start actually by saying what a privilege it is to be on the podcast. So I actually probably realized it, you know, when I was a little girl and when I was at school, you know, I, I went to an all-girls school, which is quite strange for Americans to be listening to because it's quite a common thing in the United Kingdom. But I went to an all-girls school, and, and I realized because I studied kind of physics, chemistry, maths, advanced maths, and arts at kind of upper level, so just before I graduated, and I realized there were a lot more girls in my art class than there were in my physics class or the kind of advanced math class. So you realized then there was some kind of stereotyping going on or some kind of reason that these girls who were extraordinarily capable and exceptional weren't choosing subjects like physics or math. And then we have an issue in the UK in our kind of admissions policies to universities that actually to study subjects like optics or physics or engineering or electronic engineering, all of that requires you to have studied physics and maths at quite a high level at high school. So if you've not made that decision when you're 15, 16, 17, you've really selected yourself out of having these kind of extraordinary careers. So I realized that when I was at high school, I didn't really have the capacity to do much more then than just do my exams and get to university. I actually went to art school for a year before doing physics and then got to, to the physics department at Imperial, which is incredibly prestigious, incredibly eminent, but also very male-dominated and very, very white. And I think I just, you know, throughout my undergraduate degree when I was trying to keep up to you know, keep up for all of the physics and make back the time that I'd spent at art school to try and remember all my maths again. I think I just became more and more aware of how extraordinarily lucky I was to have had the support and the inspiration to find physics. You know, most young people don't have that opportunity and really to try and extend that luck to other people. So I kind of got a bit more involved with outreach programs, more involved with public engagement and education. And that kind of accelerated throughout my PhD. I went from just attending to give a talk at lunchtime to really thinking strategically about how we can design programs that are kind of equal and inclusive. 
and and then and then throughout my postdoc and, and now fellowship, I've been thinking of ways to make that more sustainable and wider spread. But I think definitely in a very long roundabout way to answer your question, it started when I, I definitely recognized this kind of bias and stereotyping when I was little. And then and then it became something that became very important to me throughout my kind of studies and then scientific career that actually we're fundamentally limiting ourselves as scientists because we really don't have the best minds possible because we're selecting from such a narrow pool. So we often hear about scientists and researchers who, who are established in the optics and photonic space, starting their education or, or even starting their careers in positions in other areas of the sciences. But for you, it was, it was really other disciplines altogether, a, a year in art school, uh, among other things. Uh, how important has that been for you as someone who's now uh, established to have explored, worked in other areas, not just of the sciences, not just of your, your current discipline, but other fields altogether? I think it's been super important, and I reckon everyone who's been on the podcast before, and certainly everyone you meet in the optics and photonics community, has had this incredibly diverse and extraordinary career path to get where they're going to. You know, I spend a lot of time looking at professors and established industry leaders' biographies and reading and, and listening to them, and I'm always amazed at the journey that people have gone through. I think art has been incredibly important to me in trying to you know, even just set up an experiment in a kind of creative way. We all want to be doing science that no one's done for and to interpret and analyze information in a way that's not been done. And certainly having that freedom in your head that you get from from studying something like art, where you really have to just focus on on kind of being creative and thinking openly, having that has been really important. But even at a kind of more mundane, very trivial level, having art as a way to communicate the science you've done, you know, having some basic training in how to create a diagram that expresses and describes what you want to show. You know, lots of the optics and photonics concepts are quite difficult when you write them down or you just express it in an equation and it's much easier if you can do that visually. And so I think having some training in the art has really helped me for that. And actually something I just thought of while we were speaking that I've never really thought of before is that all of the art that I was most drawn to during my time at art school and then afterwards I lived in Italy studying Renaissance art is all that kind of art that's very bright and dark. You know, they call it chiaroscuro, this very dramatic difference between contrasts and all of that relies heavily on optics and an understanding of optics and photonics. So certainly the art was useful. And I think I think in my kind of limited capacity to be able to do teaching because they let you do a little bit as a postdoc and then a research fellow. The students that I interact with daily are, you know, incredibly diverse range of hobby and interest. Some of them are international chess players. Some of them compete in quiz tournaments. Some of them are extraordinary musicians. So I really think this notion that scientists have, you know, all they do is sit in a lab all day or all they do is sit at a blackboard all day is just completely misguided. So yeah, for sure, the art training was important. But beyond that, I've always completely loved chemistry. And I think I found it really hard, as, as many people, I think, working at this kind of intersection in material science, I found it really hard leaving chemistry at high school. So having the opportunity to work in the discipline I do now and, and kind of looking at new materials for OLEDs or for other applications has really let me make use of that chemistry and, and, and that enthusiasm and excitement again. 
Jess Wade from Imperial College London is our guest. Uh, you mentioned OLEDs. Let's talk about them. Uh, they're technologies that we hear in our coverage. We see them popping up a lot when we cover the laser industry, say. You know, a lot of applications, laser-based applications, uh, are, are tailored for OLEDs, PLEDs too, but OLEDs in particular right now. What initially drew you to the technology? I finished my, when I was coming to the end of my undergraduate degree, I started a kind of undergraduate research project or a master's research project looking at organic electronic materials, so carbon-based semiconductors, particularly for solar panels, but kind of more broadly in how we can characterize them and understand how molecular orientation and packing impacts their device performance. So I was really thinking a lot about solar, solar cells then and their application. And I just became completely fascinated by this kind of family of materials, both small molecules and polymers, that we could use and make use of in completely diverse range of technologies. And I think that, you know, over my relatively short time in this research area, it's just completely exploded how many ways we can use these different materials and how they'll contribute to the kind of designs and devices of the future. So certainly I started in solar cells. I was kind of you know, interested in in developing these advanced spectroscopic techniques and microscopic techniques so that we could really understand the way that these polymers were behaving, particularly when we blended them with acceptor molecules. I then got, to, and really at that time when I was doing my PhD, I didn't really mind about OLEDs. I felt a lot like the technology had happened. The materials that were going to be put in, in devices, in mobile phone and television displays, the kind of discovery and innovation part had already happened you know they were they were happening it was commercial and so I was kind of turning my nose up on my friends who were working on OLED still and then I had my PhD exam so in the UK we call it a viva in the US we call it a defense and I had it with this absolutely fantastic chemist who was working on these chiral materials so organic semiconductors still carbon-based semiconductors but ones where they were differentiated so that we had the left and the right-handed form. Chiral objects are these kind of weird and wonderful objects that exist actually across all different length scales, but it's but chiral molecules exist as non-superimposable mirror image pairs. So you have a left-handed chiral molecule and a right-handed chiral molecule, exactly the same, chem same chemical structure, but a different distribution of the atoms in space when you, when you draw out the molecule. And actually, these left and right-handed molecules can have very different interactions with light and with magnetic fields. And when I finished my when I finished my PhD, I had this exam. I had this interaction with a chemist who was developing these, particularly for applications in OLEDs, and actually particularly to try and make OLEDs even more efficient and better than they are. And and I was just so interested in this that we take a technology which is quite mature which is already in our devices, which is already something that, you know, the industry recognizes and needs. And we add kind of material functionality to make it even more efficient and better. And I was so inspired by that concept and also excited by the potential to take these kind of cool characterization techniques and try and learn more about how this was happening in the first place. The whole concept of using chiral molecules and materials to make things more efficient is kind of out there and zany. So I was so fascinated by that, I just got really into it. And, and now I feel like I, I have more time and appreciation for OLEDs as a technology. 
I'm glad you mentioned weird, wacky, zany, because they're all they're all words that we've used to describe chiral molecules and, and polymers too, uh, certainly contradictory polymers. There's a lot of weird stuff, um, weird potential there. Uh, I want to ask you a, a very in-depth science question. I know you're up for it. Many present OLED display devices are made predominantly from these small vacuum-deposited molecules. And that's a process that certainly is inefficient, but it does bring up some challenges, uh, particularly in the fabrication and production of these intermediate size red, green, blue, high-res displays. Uh, there are alternatives, and you can use solution process materials that are deposited by uh, existing coding and printing techniques. But can you talk about some of the progress being made in that area, some of the alternatives uh, with conjugated polymers, quantum dots, more? For sure. And actually, I've exclusively worked with solution process materials, so I feel biased towards this technology. But obviously, vacuum thermal evaporated small molecules are really brilliant and they can give really great brightnesses. And that's why they've ended up in our mobile phones. And I think probably the reason that they're used so often is because you have much lower batch to batch variability. When you create a small molecule and you evaporate it, during that process, you get rid of lots of the imperfections and the things that you want to get out of the small molecule. And then you can pretty consistently say every time you do that evaporation, you get exactly the same thin film. The challenge and the difficulty is it's incredibly expensive and time-consuming to do this vacuum evaporation process. Obviously, you have to take the materials to really low pressure, and then you have to really tune the deposition to make sure that you get it perfect every single time. We're also kind of limited on, on things like size when you're doing a vacuum deposition process. So, so you can imagine that it's okay for OLED pixels where you want really, really tiny pixels and where you've got quite a lot of money to invest in that instrumentation and fabrication. But it's not okay in other applications, particularly on large area. The kind of beauty of solution processing is that you can work on a huge, huge, diverse variety of, of, of molecules and polymers, where you work primarily with a chemist to design a material that will have exactly the optical and electronic properties you want, you know, to emit the particular wavelength you want, if you're designing a solar panel to absorb at the particular wavelength you want. And then it's as simple as dissolving that molecule or polymer into a solvent, the kind of common, most of them dissolving common organic solvents, and then printing them. And, and as you mentioned before, we can borrow a lot from conventional printing technologies like roll-to-roll -roll printing, like really simple things like inkjet printing. And we can use that to deposit the active layer in one of these kind of multi-layer structures. And the beauty is how quickly you can get results and how large area these these systems can be. You know, we can print ultra thin films onto flexible substrates in incredibly large areas incredibly quickly compared to some of the limitations of, of vacuum deposition. And actually, one more thing which is really, really interesting is that in the design of chiral molecules and materials that I work on, in, in this technology, we're particularly trying to make the light emitted by our OLED circularly polarized. So we're trying to make the light itself chiral. And the reason that we're doing that is to try and bypass the anti-glare filter that you have in an OLED display. At the moment, because of the kind of multi-layered stack structure of an OLED, there's an electrode at the back. And if you didn't have an anti-glare filter there, you'd get a distorted image when you looked at your mobile phone in bright lightness or when someone turned the, the light on behind you when you're watching the television. So we try and make the pixels emit circularly polarized light to bypass that anti-glare filter and to have a more efficient display. 
if you try and do that through vacuum evaporation, you can often destroy the chirality of the molecule that's emitted. So even though you can sublime these things at high temperatures and low pressures, you can destroy the chiral structure, which means that they won't emit slightly polarized light. So it's this kind of really interesting thing where not only does solution process technologies offer lots of advantages in low cost and high throughput and large area, but also they might make our displays even more efficient because we can make the light out of them twisted with relative simplicity compared to vacuum technologies. Glad you mentioned chirality uh, some more, and we'll mention it again here. Uh, but I want to talk about OLEDs specifically uh, for one more question. When we think about OLEDs, or uh, when we're reading about them in anticipation for, for interviews like this, in my case, we tend uh, <laughs> to think about the TV and the smartphone, uh, especially the smartphone applications. Um, but what you learn, what I've learned, is that the potential for the technology extends well beyond those applications. Can you talk about some of the additional applications that we might soon be seeing for OLED technology? Uh, I, I know there's talk in AR, VR, aerospace defense, perhaps in that area, or even something that may not be on our radars. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, for me, one of the most exciting ones is using them in sensing and, and biosensing, particularly because, you know, say the OLED can emit slightly polarized light, you could then use it to detect chiral biomolecules, which is really exciting. But the beauty of all of these devices, OLEDs for any technology, is how ultra-thin, flexible, and lightweight they can be. So if you're designing a sensor, which often relies on illuminating some kind of biomarker or molecule with light and then detecting it with another device. So there you have an OLED, an organic light emitting diode, and something called an OPD, an organic photodetector. And if you did this in conventional inorganic technologies, you have to build up really complicated, rigid, brittle stacks of, of different materials to be able to do this. And actually, it's really hard to achieve the signal to noise you need to be able to accurately say that you've detected that biomolecule that's there. The beauty of using something like OLEDs and OPDs in combination with some kind of microfluidic chip is that you can then use it to do kind of rapid testing of different fluids or anything like that to detect for different trace molecules, whether that's biomolecules or pollutants. You can tune the excitation and the absorption to be able to really precisely control exactly what molecule you want to detect. And you can get the two devices really close together because you've printed them on these flexible substrates because you put them on these plastics. So you have extraordinary resolution and ability to discriminate between different biomolecules, which I think is really, really neat. Another really cool application of, of carbon-based semiconductors beyond OLEDs is that not only can these materials transport charge, so they can transport electrons, but they can also transport ions. So lots of people are exploring devices that also make use of this ability to transport ions in biosensing and gas sensing in, in almost kind of medical interfaces with the human body for, for detection of particular diseases, which I think is really extraordinary. So you have this ability to apply OLEDs for, for really, you know, next generation displays, using them in biosensing, using them in, in large area panels, using them for optical communications, which I think is really neat. So using them to send 
you know, almost as if we have Wi-Fi, but using them in Li-Fi and kind of light communications. And, and there you have huge potentials for really rapid data transfer, storage and encryption, which I think is great. But almost any application, any technologies that people can think of that use light will just become more efficient, cheaper and, and ability to become flexible when we incorporate OLED. I, I do promise we'll get back to chirality. Uh, I have another uh, question that just popped into my head. Uh, you, you mentioned communication and optical communication. Uh, and of course, here we are chatting right around uh, the end of the year 2020. What has this year been like in terms of communication? How has focus on communication changed this year? It, you know, everyone is talking virtually, if at all. Uh, I'm just curious from your perspective, from your platform, how has the need to establish different forms and reliable forms of communication affected your research, if at all? It's been completely essential. I think it's probably given us more time as one of these big interdisciplinary groups where you have, you know, material scientists, chemists, physicists, often working on different sites and then collaborating with people. You know, we're only as good as our collaborations, I always think. And so many of our collaborators are, are national or international. And I think having the time when we're not sitting in offices, having the time when we're not sitting in labs has given us that space to speak more, to go back, to look at that data, to say, hey, this is cool and interesting, to form that new collaboration that might result in something else, to put together a collaborative proposal because you've all had the time and opportunity to think. And I think that the ability to connect remotely, the ability to have these discussions has been completely essential. But I think that obviously not seeing people face to face, not being able to attend conferences, not really having. And while I think a lot of fantastic stuff has been happening online, I think that you pretty much self-select to go to the things that you think you'll be interested in. You know the beauty of walking through a kind of conference and thinking, hey, I've got an extra half an hour, I'll just drop into that session on spectroscopy, and then learning something that's completely mind-blowing and you could apply to your discipline. I think, I think we've lost that a little bit, but thankfully the research groups that I, I'm, I'm in and the you know, networks that I'm part of, both at Imperial and internationally, have given me this opportunity to hear from so many distinguished and extraordinary speakers, virtually, of course, but ones that I wouldn't have otherwise had access to. You know, professors who who give up their time to give a an hour seminar for a, for a lecture group on on Teams, and then you get so many ideas that come from that. So actually, that has been really brilliant in this past year. Is just sitting down and listening to so many different perspectives. But yeah, I think, I think I've been lucky in that just because the team I work with are really brilliant and we've all kept really closely in touch. Actually, I was so thrilled today to hear that the PhD researchers in our group have all managed to get home for Christmas. We were really worried that they wouldn't be able to. So, so I was really glad that they all managed to get back to their respective European cities. But, but connecting with each other has sure. been completely essential. Jess Wade joining us. She is the inaugural winner of the SPIE Diversity Outreach Award. We'll move back to your wheelhouse now, as promised. You joined Wired UK for a video that explores and, and outlines chiral materials, among other things, but chiral materials. And I want to talk about this convergence of chirality and technology, uh, but I think we probably ought to define chiral materials fully for those who haven't seen that video uh, and who aren't in the know. Can you do that for us? I can try. So, so chiral objects exist as, as, as I tried to mention before, but kind of bungled, chiral objects exist as non-superimposable mirror image pairs. 
And, and the easiest way to try and understand that is to just look at your left and your right hand. When you put them together palm to palm, they're mirror images of one another. But if you try to put them on top of each other, kind of both facing up, you can see they're not mirror images. Then you don't have it. And that's what this kind of non-superimposable means. They're non-identical when you put them on top of each other, but when you put them palm to palm, they're mirror images. And chirality actually exists at the kind of subatomic scale. We see electrons have spin, so you have up and down electrons. We see it at the molecular scale, and actually molecules that lots of people who are listening to will be familiar with, the molecule that gives rise to the scent of spearmint is exactly the same as the molecule that gives rise to the scent of caraway, but one's one-handedness and one is the other-handedness, which is really quite extraordinary because they smell very different. And then at the kind of macroscopic scale, we have lots of chiral objects from kind of pasta, fusilli that everyone knows and loves, to, to screws and things like that that are twisted, that have this, this chirality, this this non-superimposable mirror image nature. Now, what's really interesting is, is thinking about how we can make use of this chirality in technologies. Because actually, as I mentioned with fragrances, lots of different industries have been using it for a very long time. So in the fragrance industry, we know to design fragrances or scents. If, if, if we want a particular smell, we'll have to think about the chirality of the molecules that we're designing. In, in the pharmaceutical industry, you have to think really carefully about the design of drugs because they have very different reactivities in our bodies based on whether they're the left-handed or the right-handed form. So a while ago now, a, a bunch of chemists got together and started thinking about the way we could use chiral materials in technology. And it's kind of obvious translation to OLEDs. You know, you just think about how the molecular structure or the structure of the excited state of a small molecule or polymer might emit twisted light. So how can we tune that and design that so that we can get really twisted light emitted? But there's more and more technologies emerging based on chiral materials that are just really cool and completely unpredicted. Can you give us a sense of where we might be going in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I think so. So so I think the OLEDs, the OLED field, the application of chiral materials to OLEDs is completely appreciated. There's actually a really, really great international training network going on at the moment, which is a collaboration of different universities around the world, led by a fantastic research a professor called Jean Cressu. And they're all researchers working towards OLEDs that make use of chirality and incorporate chirality. The kind of fascinating areas that I see as, as emerging are the use of chiral materials to detect magnetic fields. So, so chiral materials do this really interesting thing when you pass linearly polarized light through them. If they're in a magnetic field and you pass linearly polarized light through, chiral materials will rotate the polarization of light by an amount dependent on material properties of that chiral thin film or whatever structure you've created, which might let you do really, really weak detection of magnetic fields. So you could sense ultra weak magnetic fields by using these chiral molecules. This is still emerging and, and primarily based on some research out of the east coast of the US, out of um, the labs at MIT. But that looks really cool to me. One that I'm also completely perplexed and amazed by and actually is, is the focus of my fellowship. So I should stop saying I'm perplexed by it. But is looking at how electrons move through chiral systems. So, so as I mentioned before, electrons are also chiral. They have a spin. They're either spin up or spin down, depending on their angular momentum. 
And and because they have this spin, they also have an associated magnetic trans. They have a magnetic dipole moment. And as as an electron is moving through a chiral structure or a chiral molecule or a chiral polymer, it will feel an effective magnetic field of that chiral polymer. I'm upset that we're not together because I'm doing really great hand gestures right now to explain what's going on. Yeah, it is the but, uh, it is the poison of the podcast. <laughs> the electron will feel that magnetic field of the chiral structure. And because the electron has its own magnetic dipole, whether it's up or down, that will be different. Electrons that are spin up or spin down will move through a chiral system differently, actually to the extent that electron transport becomes directional. Some of those electrons will be blocked. One one handedness, one spin of electrons will be blocked depending on the handedness of the chiral molecule or chiral polymer. And this is completely incredible because this happens at room temperature. And usually this spin filtering, this kind of block of a particular spin only happens in inorganic materials and only happens if we do it at ultra cold temperatures, which is why if we ever want to design devices that make use of electron spin as well as electron charge, we have to use these kind of complicated, often ferromagnetic layers that we have to super cool. Now, chiral molecules seem to be emerging and chiral polymers as a way to filter electron spin, to design devices that make use of this electron spin at room temperature from solution processed materials at a really low cost. And this is quite extraordinary because this will let you make fully organic spintronic devices, which are applicable to a whole range of different applications, including kind of ultra high density data storage. And it will let you do it with just organic layers, which is, has really never been possible before. So actually, at the moment, I think the big, the big directions for chiral molecules will be in spintronics, in room temperature spintronics. It will be in the detection of, of chiral biomarkers and biosensing, because they're completely unique in their ability to do that. And also in, in the detection of magnetic fields. So there's a lot of different directions that are all equally as exciting and extraordinary, which had you asked me when I started my postdoc in this, I would have had no idea about. So these are all completely emerging, you know, I would say every week, but probably month by month, we find a new application. So this this work at the level you're conducting it, and we've put you now through the ringer of, of the science talk, so you can uh, you can take the, your foot off the gas for that portion of the interview. Uh, <laughs> but the work at the level that you're conducting it, it doesn't, it must not take place without some inspirational guiding figures. And I, I must admit that I, I feel this is almost certainly true too in, in some of your, uh, I don't know if advocacy is the right word, but some of your work uh, in equity and inclusion and, and establishing more accurate representation in STEM and physics. Can you share with us who your inspirations or your heroes are? Oh, yeah, for sure. So without a doubt, my, my inspiration in equity is a woman called Angela Saini, who is an engineer turned science writer. So she studied engineering at Oxford. She had, she had, I think she started an engineering career and then became a science writer and a journalist and actually is just the most extraordinary woman. She's written three books now, but it was her second book, which is called Inferior, The True Power of Women and the Science That Shows It, that really opened my eyes to kind of gender discrimination, to how how systematic it was in society and to how scientists have really, really perpetuated it. You know, how biased scientists had done bad science and this had driven this notion, this concept that women were intellectually inferior to men. And obviously this isn't recent news. You know, it's been happening for, for centuries, if not, 
you know, thousands of years that actually Angela really went into the science and particularly the bad neuroscience that had been used to, to, to propagate this myth that women were inferior, that you definitely see this, this myth is commonplace today and often in physics departments. So I read this book in kind of 2017. It had just come out and I was asked to review it for Physics World, the, the magazine of the Institute of Physics. And I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to write a book review because I hadn't written one since high school. And I read it about three times, the book, and I kept sending the review to my dad. And I was like, is this good enough? And Angela actually is not only an exceptional researcher and writer, but also an absolutely brilliant speaker. Kind of, you know, well, I mean, I, I listen to her all the time. And I think one day I'll get to that level of sophistication and articulation in how I do but I went to see her a bunch and to hear her a bunch. And she really inspired me to, to become more of an advocate for this cause. She's then subsequently written a book called Superior, The Fatal Return of Race Science, that looks at racism in academia and, and just how dangerous and detrimental that has been to society. And, and honestly, I, I just, you know, I find everything she does incredible. She's leading a, a group at the moment of scientists and editors and policymakers and tech entrepreneurs to try and look at misinformation and pseudoscience and how we can collectively tackle it. So she's been an inspiration from a lot of levels and continues to be one. But I have lots of different inspirations in, in science and academia. I think probably my earliest were certainly my mother and my physics teacher. My mother is, is a psychiatrist and, and was an academic psychiatrist for my childhood and now works in student mental health, even though she should certainly be retired. But continues to love and contribute to, to the field she's in. And my physics teacher was just this absolutely extraordinary woman who had studied physics, actually had a doctorate in physics, had a PhD, which you just don't expect for a physics teacher at high school, and had this real enthusiasm and commitment to get everyone in the class excited and interested in what we were doing. And when I think about really extraordinary physics teaching now, you know, it's that teaching that takes you out of of your classroom, it takes you out of the place that you're in and it contextualizes the science in the real world. And she 100% did that. So my physics teacher is a woman called Dorothy Wargate. I should notice name her. And my mother is a woman called Charlotte Feynman. But beyond that, beyond these, <laughs> you can tell I'm inspired by a lot of people. Yeah, sure. I have, <laughs> a, great, <laughs> I have a great friend called Chris Jackson, who's a professor of earth sciences, actually, and, and geology at Imperial. And he is not only an extraordinary science communicator and not only a brilliant falconologist and earth scientist, but he's a huge advocate for speaking up about racial discrimination in science. And, and he's one of very few black professors in the UK. I think he's one of two black professors at my massive university and probably one of about 100 black professors in the whole 19,000 UK professor wow. community. Wow! And he is such a powerful force for doing really great science, for supporting his students, for innovations in teaching, for supporting this concept, which he talks about a lot, about really proper work-life balance. And he has three perfect daughters who he pays a lot of attention to. And I think that, you know, having a leader who does that is extraordinary. But beyond that, he is incredibly open in talking about racial discrimination and, and, and ex his experiences in academia. And I think that, you know, he he kind of inspires me every day. So I think Chris Jackson is definitely there as someone who is just an extraordinarily brilliant voice for the future of science.
I want to sort of now redirect that question, give it, uh, make it take a 180. And one of the fun things, I don't know if fun is the right word, but I'll use it. One of the things about your career in particular and, and the multifaceted nature of it uh, has to be the opportunities that you have to connect with young people, uh, both in and out of the sciences. What are some of the lessons and, and some of the pieces of advice that you most look forward to sharing with young people? How extraordinarily diverse your day will be as a scientist. I think that young people think that, I mean, A, it's talking about what we do as scientists, right? Because I don't think I knew at high school. I had no idea that you could have a job where you worked in physics as a real job. I thought, you know, you studied physics, you became a physics teacher, or you went and worked in some oil rig as an engineer. I didn't know people could do science. So I think the first thing is that. And then it's talking about this complete freedom to explore and discover things that no one knew anything about before you know that you when you're at high school when you're at university you're learning basically a bunch of laws and theories that have been set out by scientists before you got there right before you got into the department or the classroom and this concept that as a researcher you can be doing something which applies those theories which makes use of that knowledge but to really understand a phenomena that no one's ever looked at before, I find that extraordinary. And I think I always try and communicate that with young people. The, the kind of importance of teamwork and networking and, and you know, pre, pre-corona, the idea that we can have international travel and we can go away and can, sorry, uh, imperfect corona timing is the list. The idea that we can go away and, and work it's people all around the world in, in different research institutes in different countries, people with different training, people with all of these different experiences. That's been really crucial for me. And I think that explaining that to young people, something that I think is really important and probably you've spoken about on the podcast before, and if not, we should definitely do it, is um, speaking to young people about failure and getting things wrong. Um, I think that talking to young people about failure and not knowing the answer and setting up an experiment just because you want to discover something and working things out like that has also been really important. You know, being very honest when you present your science to say, we didn't actually know that answer then. So we did a few more experiments and then we found out this and then we went to this expert here and then we found this perfect person here who could help us out. So certainly that journey has been really important to communicate and yeah, I think just really emphasizing that science is this team sport where we benefit from people who have had really diverse trainings and backgrounds has been really, really important to me. Jess Wade from Imperial College London has been our guest today on All Things Photonics. And I want to end the interview sort of where we started it with a conversation about equity. When we talk about your work, uh, how expansive it's been and how impactful it's been, um, but I'm curious about the gauge you use to measure it yourself um, with regards to equity and, and breaking biases and gender. Uh, how do you chart the progress that you and others might be making in helping this narrative evolve? Oh, that's such a good question. As a scientist, I should have a really perfect answer. I've always been actually frustrated by outreach and equity programs for not having done this enough. You know, there's been women in science programs racial equality programs, there's been initiatives to have affirmative action to get women into leadership positions. And yet we haven't really evaluated, you know, when people run outreach and education programs, when universities run them, when departments and, and industry run them, it's just kind of the nice thing to do. You know, we have to do that. It's right. We should do it for fairness. And we don't collect data on what does and doesn't work. And actually, I'm really fascinated by what does and doesn't work. So when I started running programs myself and thinking more strategically about it, 
I read a bunch of literature about what's really important to young people. And what's really important to young people's decision-making is not just a one-off lunchtime talk from a physicist who talks about OLEDs. It's kind of long-term interaction. It's, it's helping out once a term. It's helping out once every few weeks, if you can. It's connecting by email. It's helping them put together personal statements and applications and resumes and doing interview prep. So all of those things are really crucial. And actually something I found really important and I think has helped me kind of make, you know, make my case for being a bit more of an activist in this area has been working with teachers and parents. You know, they're so crucial in young people's decision making. But from a metrics perspective, I spend every single evening writing the Wikipedia pages of women and people of color, scientists and engineers who are too often overlooked and completely overlooked by history books and encyclopedias. And I spend every night writing those. And actually on those, and I've I've done that since the beginning of 2018. So I've written one page a day and I'm just over, I think just over 1,200. And on those pages, you get obviously the number of pages you've made, but also how many people are looking at them. And I also see, and this is the kind of most fantastic thing, the people that I write about on those pages will get then profiled in newspapers, they'll win awards, they'll be put forward for different things. And always those citations or those profiles feature edits from their Wikipedia page, right? It will feature contributions that I've made to their Wikipedia page, and then it will be in their biography for X, or it will be in their award citation for Y. And that, I think, is such a rush. And then not only do you get that feedback, but I also get emails from people, probably a few a week, either with suggestions for women and people of color who need Wikipedia pages, or for people who are in countries that may not have textbooks and things that we do, and just read the Wikipedia pages. And they just say, you know, it's been so important to be able to have access to these because we don't have access where we are to, to magazines or textbooks. And that, I just think, that's the coolest thing. So, so my biggest thrill is, is seeing people read and engage with, in, engage with any content on Wikipedia because I think it's such a brilliant way to introduce science to people who wouldn't have access and then to see what they do with that. And, and a big part, this is such a long answer, sorry. A huge part of that for me is, is getting people recognized for the work that they've done. And so I spend a lot of time nominating women and people of color for awards and honors. And honestly, when they win those awards and honors, I do a very long dance around the kitchen with happiness about how great that is. And, and, and that's how I measure success in, in the success of other people. <laughs> well, you don't need to hear it from us, uh, but you will. Great job. Keep up the good work. Uh, and keep dancing. Thank you so much, uh, Jess, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That does it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to Joel Williams with the news. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pick us ideas, let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website. Subscribe, never miss an episode. I'm Jake Saltzman. This has been a Photonics Media Production.